Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. We review the medical literature and we review case studies. Today's show topic is a whole food, plant-based diet and lifestyle, the prescription for a healthy world and environment. Our guest today is Dr. T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D. He is the author of the book, Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition, published in 2013, and co-authored with his son, Dr. Thomas Campbell, The China Study, published in 2005. He was one of the co-investigators of the China Project in the early 1980s, along with researchers from England and China, evaluating 6,500 subjects in 65 counties in China for the relationship between nutrition and chronic disease. It is noted as one of the largest nutrition studies ever conducted. Dr. Campbell is the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University and founder of the T. Colin Campbell Foundation, a nonprofit organization that provides scientific health information to the public without influence from industry or commercial interests. Dr. Campbell has more than 70 grant years of peer-reviewed research funding and has authored more than 300 research papers. And we want to welcome Dr. Campbell to the show. And, you know, he is now entering his eighth decade of life and I have to say, you know, maybe it's time to relax, but I see him lecturing, writing, and teaching. And so I would like to ask him, what keeps you going? What's your sense of purpose to be continually sharing this information about whole food, plant-based diets, and lifestyle and disease? Well, for one thing, I mean, I intended to live a serious life, if you will, I guess. But uh, the, the other part of the story is that I really enjoyed my career. I really love science. I had I worked with a, a lot of people that were just superb people, a lot of students and colleagues and so forth. And uh, I learned during this last 60 years since I came to Cornell uh, something that uh, hasn't been told before quite like this. And so I'm really quite passionate about telling it to others. It just has uh, enormous power to do so. And I, I, my health is excellent, and so I don't see any reason to stop just because <laughs> You know, the clock ran out. So. <laughs> well, in study, one of my passions is studying the longevity cultures of the world, and one of the f- five or six components is having a daily sense of purpose. So I imagine trying to improve the health of the world and the planet is a good daily sense of purpose. So what is wrong with our reductionist way of thinking about nutrition? Well, you know, we spend, uh, and science still spends, uh, almost all his efforts studying nutrition in a very reductionist way. That means to say they look for specific nutrients doing specific things. You're operating through specific mechanisms, if you will. Uh, that's, of course, very reductionist. That is to say it's out of context. Uh, and that's what we do. Um, I guess it's easier for some people to understand, but in reality, that's not the way that nutrition works in nature. Nutrition the nutritional effect is a holistic effect. It's a combination of all the infinite, almost, numbers of chemicals in food and that are operating together, operating through an enormously complex and highly uh, synergenic um, effect to produce a whole you know, series of bad health outcomes. So nutrition, naturally speaking, is a whole, it operates holistically. When we try to use single nutrients to do some things, you know, we can see some effects sometimes look a little bit promising. But in terms of generating long-term health, that's not the way to go. So when we talk about chronic disease, if I'm reframing what you said, it's that 
single nutrients for chronic diseases aren't going to work, but the compilation of all the different phytochemicals and components in a whole food diet is what makes that approach to chronic diseases work? Yes. We've got good evidence for that now. I mean, for example, single nutrients in the form of nutrient supplements really don't work for long-term health. There's a lot of evidence on that now. But we also now have evidence, too, that especially with a whole food plant-based diet, we can actually reverse and essentially cure serious diseases. So the differences are stark between you know, the reductionist approach as opposed to the holistic approach. So did your part of your thinking get reframed when you did the, the China project, uh, the study back in the 19, early 1980s? Was that where your thinking about holism and nutrition science began to develop? I've asked myself that question many times. In some ways, I think it started almost with my graduate studies when I was finding at that time in nutrition, you know, upper-class nutrition courses, that when nutrients work together, they create a different response than when they, are, and when they work separately, if you will. Uh, and in the channel project itself, so when, I, when that project started in the early 80s, it was an opportunity for me to kind of test that idea, as well as test uh, a lot of specific things that we had done during the 60s and 70s that suggested the kind of diet we ought to be consuming. So going to China to do that was really quite exciting because in rural China, those people tend to consume, uh, for the most part, a plant-based diet. They have other issues, obviously. It's not perfect, but that's, that's where they are, nutritionally speaking. And number one and number two, the Chinese sense of science is much, much older than ours. And so it goes back, you know, two or three thousand years. And so their way of thinking about cause and effect relationships, uh, I found just absolutely fascinating. Uh, it, it is what now I call holism in a sense, things working together. They, when I first went to China, they could care less about what the mechanism of something was. They were more interested in the result they got. And so that uh, certainly kind of opened my eyes to some extent and added to my interest that I had acquired over the years. Can you share the, the, the big synopsis of you know, the China project, for those who don't know about it, just kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what the take-home message is? Yeah, first I need to clarify the difference between the concept China Project and the book China Study. The China Study is a compilation not only of the information we got from China, but also even more so the compilation of the evidence that we got from the laboratory and the evidence that you know, we got in the literature from the work of others. But the China Project specifically was a survey of 65 rural counties in China in the early 1980s two villages in each county. We did that for uh, statistical reasons also. But uh, what we did, we, we were building, we, we did a dietary and lifestyle survey of those 130 villages uh, in order to be able to compare what we learned uh, and when we compare with the uh, so-called mortality rates for about a, do a dozen different kinds of cancer that had been Compiled, uh, compiled by uh, the Chinese during the 1970s. The, the Chinese had actually built this enormously impressive uh, database of how much cancer occurred in a total of 2,500 counties across the country. And they learned, and we were aware, that the difference between the highest rates and the lowest rates, geographically speaking, 
was really quite enormous. You know, several dozen fold, maybe a few hundred fold in a couple of cases. So cancer clearly was a localized disease to a great extent. And that was the opportunity to go to China and carefully select these 130 villages, in a sense, uh, to represent the full range of mortality rates for seven different cancers. So that, from an experimental point of view, we really had this power of being able to you know, have a look fairly carefully at you know, possible factors, risk factors, that were involved in the causation of the disease. What, um, what were the findings with regards to cancer? Could you put that in the diet lifestyle perspective? Yes. I mean, cancer occurs in China as much less than what it is, about half as much total. Um, but they have two or three cancers that are quite a bit higher than what we have here. For example, stomach cancer, liver cancer, nasal pharyngeal cancer, esophageal cancer. Those cancers are higher there than here. So that was a, actually an advantage for, you know, for experimentalists, if you will, um, because though it, it really rather showed us that cancers in poor countries tend to be those kind of cancers, and that's primarily related to their rather if you will, either impoverished or primitive conditions they use for prepared food. That is to say, for esophageal and nasopharyngeal cancers, uh, in those areas they're consuming a lot of fermented foods, uh, basically high and salted, uh, you know, fermented salted foods, because that was the way they didn't have access to refrigeration, so they were doing that, and that in turn then triggered certain predispositions in individuals, uh, upon which then the nutritional effect would operate. So in liver cancer, for example, uh, there was very high incidence of hepatitis B virus, uh, chronic hepatitis B virus in certain areas of China. That, that kind of raises the, the, um, the baseline effect because of, in order for liver cancer to form, for example, it tends to form almost exclusively in people who are first infected with hepatitis B virus, now these days, hepatitis C virus. And uh, so we, we, it gave us an opportunity to realize that fact, and then have a look also at the same time at the role of nutrient intake, combinations of nutrients, you know, upon that sort of predisposition. So China had one set of cancers, we have another set. In total, we have much more than they do. Well, twice as much, I should say, in total. Uh, so, really allowed us to sort out, in a sense, some of the complexities that exist between the causes of different kinds of cancers. Did you get, um, could you make a a statement about the, in generalities, about what lifestyle factors, and I'm just talking about the nutritional, the factors we can control, non-infectious like hepatitis B, but the lifestyle factors in diet that increase the risk of cancer that we could apply to our uh, urbanized societies? Right. I, I think and now looking back, not just the China study itself, but many other kinds of data in our own in particular, uh, it's, if, if I could say one thing that was probably more important in my mind than anything else, it's our decision to choose to eat more protein, which in turn means animal-based protein. I mean, most people tend to think that protein is pretty much limited to animal food, when in fact it's not. We get all the protein we need from plant foods. And so when we tend to believe that we have to have this extra protein in the form of animal foods, what happens 
that not only results in the effects of the animal protein itself, but also the nutrients that tend to correlate with that. And in turn, it's also related to the displacement of the foods that we ought to be eating. So when you eat a diet that's high in animal-based foods, animal protein in particular, then we're getting the direct effects of the protein as well as the other nutrients that come along with that and as well as the so-called indirect effects of the nutrients that you know, are displaced. So the total effect, you know, nutrition speaking, really becomes quite huge. Well, in the, in the China project, did you see a correlation between animal food consumption and cancers? No, uh, not, not, not as directly as what uh, one might hope. And that's primarily because in China, the consumption of animal food was so low. I mean, it was like zero or nearly zero in some places. And so uh, on average, the percent of the total protein in the form of animal-based foods in China was only 10% as what it is here. And when you have such a low exposure to something like that, it's very difficult to tease out, you know, its effect. In fact, it's virtually impossible. Um, but we did have, you know, looking at that question a little more broadly, in a little more sophisticated way, it was very clear that, uh, for example, serum cholesterol, which relates to a higher risk for heart disease in particular, also relates to a higher risk for cancers as well. That's an idea not terribly well known. But serum cholesterol is a pretty good indicator, not a cause, but it's a good indicator of a Western kind of diet. Well, we found in China that serum cholesterol levels in general were very low compared to the West. But nonetheless, there was a range. It went from an average around 88 milligrams per deciliter up to about 170. And what we found was that cholesterol actually increases throughout that range in different counties. That, in turn, is related to the consumption of animal-based foods. And that, that was really a very exciting observation, I think, because, um, you know, it was, it, in fact, it was sort of saying that even reasonably small levels of consumption of animal-based foods uh, was problematic. And, and, and that analysis of that kind corresponds almost perfectly with what we see in Russian populations. So, what, so was that correlation between increasing levels of cholesterol also related to not just heart disease, but overall mortality or other chronic diseases, or no, in, in the China? Yes, it was. It yeah. was. I mean, we, we had an opportunity to get access to a large variety of different kind of disease rates, uh, some of which were the chronic degenerative kinds like we get in the West, you know, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and so forth, uh, and then compare that in turn with the diseases we tend to see in poor countries, the infectious diseases in particular. And so when we sort of it turns out that through a statistical analysis, the Western kind of diseases tend to aggregate in certain geographic areas, obviously as they get closer and closer to urban areas, and the poor countries, I mean the poor or poverty diseases tend to occur obviously in the poor areas. And then we could see that kind of aggregated relationship between Western and Eastern diseases, if, if you will, or disease of affluence as opposed to the disease of poverty. When they aggregate like that, then we could ask the question, what are the chief factors primarily responsible for the increase of, let's say, Western kind of diseases? And it was cholesterol, serum cholesterol, which in turn relates to the consumption of animal-based foods and a decrease in the consumption of whole plant-based foods, which is, quite frankly, very similar 
to what we can conclude from, you know, all the rest of the studies done in the West. When you studied uh, in the Philippines, I remember you told us you tell the story of from that research and others. Uh, I think it was an Indian researcher that you could you learned that you could almost turn on and turn off cancer by the amount of the amount of protein consumed and then the type of protein consumed. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I mean, the Indian workers didn't do that. What the Indian workers showed in experimental animal studies was that when animals were exposed to a really potent carcinogen that gives rise to liver cancer, in those studies, uh, they found that the level of protein in the diet for those animals was really the major factor that determined whether or not they got the cancer or not. Animals given higher levels of protein in, the, in their particular study, 100% of them got the liver cancer. And when the level of protein is at 20% of total calories. In contrast, uh, with the second group, only fed 5% protein, now we've got the liver cancer or precancerous lesions. I mean, that was striking. And that's what I noticed when I was in the Philippines when we were, in those days, attempting to make sure everybody got enough protein, especially the, you know, the poor children. And so that was a very odd observation. I didn't really believe it, but there it was. And uh, but then I got the impression, and it was only an impression, that the few families in the Philippines consuming the most protein, so like us, they tended to have, so I thought, uh, the children who were more likely to get cancer. And so that was just enough information for me to organize a proposal you know, for, to get funding to study that question in more depth because here we were involved in, in advancing the cause of animal protein, if you will, in the Philippines, and this information suggested maybe that wasn't a very good idea. So we got the funding, and I got generous funding, in fact, on that particular grant from the National Cancer Institute for the next 27 years. And so that's where a lot of our laboratory work came from. And it took a while, but you know, going upstream in a sense, sort of observing something that I hadn't initially believed, but it, it, eventually the evidence became so persuasive, really so overwhelming. And, and I just, I like to believe that the evidence, not hearsay, but the evidence was staring me in the face. That's, that's what we saw. And, and, and let me get one more comment, Kurt. Yeah, uh, what, what we also learned is that if you compare 20% protein diets versus 5%, for example, as we did many times over, uh, when, when we could switch that diet, one, you know, back and forth from 5 to 20 or 20 back to 5, we could turn on and turn off cancer development. It was really remarkable. So the question I have that it's been brought to my attention is that in, that, in those studies, I believe you're using casein, which is a milk protein. So is casein as an animal protein the same as eating a chunk of red meat, let's say, in the ability to induce a cancer, especially when you're exposed to a carcinogen? Is that, is that, that's kind of confusing to me. Uh, yes. Uh, animal proteins as a group tend to behave rather like each other. And there's work that's been done on that in years past. But they tend to work like each other. Uh, they t tend to be more efficient in stimulating growth rates, for example, or cell replication and doing some other things. Uh, in, in contrast, plant proteins that sort of do the opposite. So it, it, this is an observation for other kinds of disease outcomes. Obviously, we, we couldn't do all those studies with checking out every protein. But the nature of the events that occur, the biochemical events that occur, as a result of consuming casein or animal-based protein, 
Those events are commonly seen when other animal proteins are fed in the laboratories of other people. Uh, so I, I, I'm totally confident that when we see something with casein, uh, that in fact reflects in general the effects of animal protein. So likewise, does is a, let's say a soy protein um, the same as a protein that you get out of green leafy vegetables as far as you know, risk to cancer. Yes. Yes, when we fed the plant protein, even up to the high level of 20%, for example, uh, we did, the cancers did not grow. But they did grow if we turned around and sort of added back the deficit amino acids in those plant proteins, which, of course, suggested rather strongly that it was the, nutrient, it was the amino acid composition of those proteins that really determined their effects, good or bad. And that's the difference between plant and animal-based proteins. Plant proteins tend to be a bit lower, one or two amino acids, if you will, or lower than what you know stimulates rapid growth rate, for example. And uh, animal proteins are they're very efficient in providing you know a, a very efficient process of stimulating growth rate, including the growth rate of growth rate of cancer cells. And animal proteins, you know, their amino acid composition is just like ours. We're animals. And so, obviously, consuming the protein of our, of our animal, animal brethren, if you will, um, it, it really works quite efficiently in terms of doing things that we'd rather not have, have done. In, um, in your lectures, I, when I heard you speak the last, I actually heard you speak twice over the last several months, and one of the things that became clear, you've been at uh, Cornell for a long time, and you talked about academic freedom and, and tenure of professors to do research without industry influence. And I know you've been through the wars with industry influencing or trying to influence your work. Or Can you explain that a little bit? I mean, I, you, you gave the stark analogy of, even though I know you, you were raised on a dairy farm and you don't believe we should consume dairy foods, but right outside your window or something, there was a big milk bottle <laughs> or something at Cornell. Um, can, you, right. can you explain how industry has uh, affected... Um, Nutrition science? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I came here 60 years ago to Cornell, uh, and then when I finished my graduate studies and my research, I was away for 14 years, came back as a full professor in 1975. So I've been around Cornell for a long time. And I do want to say before I answer that question, I have the highest regard for the reputation of Cornell in many ways. I mean, I, I, my career was here. Uh, I, I gained tremendously from the university. I have a great respect for the university. In fact, my immediate family, that's our children, and, and myself, we have seven degrees from Cornell, just to illustrate. So I, I, what I'm about to say, I don't want to reflect on the university's, you know, individuals at the university. Like every institution, we've got some people who do things that we ought, we ought not to do, and we've got a lot of people, that, most people who do things very well. Um, but having said that, I'm really distressed, to be honest about it, uh, with the influence of industry, you know, in the in the uh, research that we want to do and the rushes we should be giving, it, it definitely in fact is very serious. Uh, and I sort of compare it with the whole concept of academic freedom. And I can say it this way: I think it's best when I was a graduate student at Cornell, my estimation and my colleagues, with other graduate students, we just assumed that all the faculty had you know, academic freedom, if you really could learn and say what they wanted to say, more or less. 
uh, without retribution. And so that's the way it was. Let's say 90%. I don't know what the figure was, but in more recent years, now we've got some pretty good evidence that's been published by others that by 1980, I was in graduate school in the late 50s, early 60s. So by 1980, 70% of all the faculty at major universities were either tenured or in tenure track positions, which enabled them to practice academic freedom. 70% in 1980. 30 years later, in 2010, that had dropped to 30%. Now it's probably, I'm guessing, uh, probably somewhere around 10, 15%. In other words, academic freedom in the form of having tenure has been almost just about wiped out. And I think this is a very, very serious problem. It's something the public needs to know. It's not happening just only at Cornell, it's happening elsewhere too. Because when a faculty member, especially doing research and teaching and so forth, you know, they discover something that may not be that popular, um, it's our responsibility to tell it as we see it. But under the, when without tenure, you can't do it. You know, if in fact the institution is relying on money from the private sector. And of course, all the land-grant schools in the country are you know, getting funding you know, as an entitlement, essentially, from the government for you know, doing agricultural research in particular. That's been true ever since the, the days of President Lincoln. So academic freedom to me is, is very, very precious. And if we don't have academic freedom, I think a free society is going to lose uh, in the long run in a major, major way. Because academic freedom is, a, is an expression of the freedom of speech. And our First Amendment is all about freedom of speech. And if we take away those institutions or sort of deny those institutions, they're supposed to be illustrating for us how that works. If we deny those institutions from practices and freedom of speech, I think the same. That's a no-brainer. That is costly. And so as a result, the researchers and lectures and stuff and so forth at universities, they're being hired essentially on a contract basis. That's what it comes out to be. They're vulnerable. They can't, they, they really can't speak what they need to say at times because it can be dumped. So, and that's what's happening. So then, with regards to nutrition research, because I know you've been in the, the thick of politics and that, so with regards to nutrition research, for example, you know, everybody thinks dairy and protein is great. You know, that's all you hear about. So is that, in your opinion, is that information from, for, with regards to those macro foods being uh, manipulated <laughs> to say they're fine and healthy? Yes, they certainly are. I mean, that information, the research on uh, dairy, for example, it goes back, gosh, close to 100 years or better. Uh, and it, it, the, the idea that dairy is, uh, is a health food almost, uh, it's been fixated you know, our brains for, you know, many, many decades now, say, say a century or more. Uh, so everybody tends to believe it. And I believe that myself I was raised on a dairy farm. I did my doctoral dissertation, basically showing and essentially proving, if you will, trying to prove that the consumption of more animal protein, I mean, the consumption of, of uh, animal-based foods uh, was the best thing we could do. Now, I came from the opposite of the fence. So... It's been a difficult journey in some ways, but quite an exciting one. And, and, the, and dairy is one of our chief sources of animal protein. And dairy does not have 
you know, the antioxidant nutrients and complex carbohydrates that play a role in preventing heart disease and cancer and so forth. And we've known some of this information about dairy more than 100 years. But it's basically been ignored or suppressed in the scientific literature. And so we run across this observation that you know, when we increase animal protein in the form of casein, the main protein in cow's milk, it turns on experimental cancer. And when you turn the cancer on and off, by decreasing it or increasing it. And so, to me, I mean, and, and then we've learned a lot about the mechanisms involved. And I can spend hours just talking about the specific mechanisms by which that works. So I'm really confident that's what happens. And so then I say to myself, do I want to eat that food or do I want to feed that to kids? Absolutely not. And then you start looking at some of the correlations between, for example, the consumption of animal protein in general and even uh, dairy protein and specifically. What you see is the results that we see in these observational studies are consistent with the you know, fundamental laboratory studies that, that we did. And so I, I raised some serious questions about the consumption of dairy. It's a problem. It can be a very big problem. And so, especially for children. Yet, you know, our National Dietary Guidelines, you know, for years, have been advocating more consumption of that food. Uh, and that goes along also with the fact that in one of the recent panels that did the Dietary Guidelines, um, they were sued for their conflicts of interest and it worked down under court examination that the majority of the people on that panel had a relationship with the dairy industry. So we're talking about a really big question here, a big big issue, and of course the Cornell has been one of the leading institutions in the country in supporting uh, research on, on uh, dairy food, if you will. I know everybody likes it, and I like it too. Yeah, that's not the issue. It's just the fact that these are the data. And then we discover once you get come to terms with understanding this is the information, then you start asking other questions. You know, can, do we, if we don't eat, do we feel deprived? No, we don't. We do maybe a few, in a few days or a few weeks even. Uh, but when we get past that sort of stage of that taste preference for that kind of food, you get past that, you really... It's a different world. Let, let me take that to then, in your book, Whole, you're, in, you're encouraging the consumption of a whole food plant-based diet. And we have these, you know, chronic diseases are 86% of our enormous health care budget. And there's probably, you know, there's academic institutions that are specialties for heart disease or cancer or diabetes. If... Everyone, if you could snap your fingers and everyone ate a whole food plant-based diet, not a processed plant-based diet, but a whole food one, would we not turn medicine upside down because there would be virtually no need for specialists in all these specialty medical services if your, if your dream was envisioned? Right. Well, that goes back to one of the first questions we talked about, and that's reductionism versus holism. In medicine, uh, the practice of medicine really is a reductionist practice. You know, we tend to want to find uh, specific drugs for specific problems, and now these days the pharmaceutical company even calls it targeted drug therapy. 
there was administering possible remedies totally out of context, okay? So yes, the question you're raising about the medical system in general is that it does rest on the use of reductionist strategies and protocols to resolve health problems. And really it's not working. It's really not working. Sure, we can cite individual cases where you know something beneficial seems to have occurred, uh, fair enough. Uh, but uh, overall, when you look at the total effect, the total population effect on health, it's it's the opposite. So what I'm talking about is simply introducing the idea uh, that nutrition is a valid science. It's really about nutrition, and nutrition as a, as a science is really poorly is poorly understood by the public, and it's not even taught in medical schools really. Not to, not to the degree that it needs to be taught. And so you know, we, we give no emphasis to nutrition as a valid science, yet it is the most powerful medical science there is. It can do more than all the pills and procedures combined. And so I just see a very, I don't know, it, it, the evidence is so stark. It's so stark. And to answer your question, if we were to switch in theory, to a whole food plant-based diet, if everybody did that and stayed with it and enjoyed it and, and so forth, I'm absolutely confident that case can easily be made that we could save 70 to 80% of a healthcare, uh, healthcare bill, a healthcare cost. 70 to 80%. It's easy to make that case, by the way. And so we should get on with And what, what I find is not only is this evidence impressive, and I think you know, I'm prepared to defend that in front of any audience or you know, any of my sort of critics, if you will. Um, if we're prepared to know that, then we should start thinking about how can we adopt it. And that's a te difficult task because the way the our policy communities are oriented and, and uh, arranged, if you will, uh, working both with the private sector and the public sector, uh, it, it's done in such a way it's very, very difficult to challenge something like that because what we're doing, we're challenging the medical system. We're challenging the food system. That's a huge task. Well, interestingly, and that's uh, that's that's a perfect segue because I to what the documentary that your your son has done, Nelson Campbell, uh, of who created Plant Pure Nation or the the documentary. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that happened in the state of Kentucky first. Uh, I was invited to speak to the uh, the Kentucky legislature on the floor, uh, and then my friend Dr. Esselton uh, joined me, and the two of us we gave gave the presentation and found that it was pretty enthusiastically received by the legislators. There were hundreds of, of them, and so it seemed quite a positive experience at the time. But when, in fact, some legislation then was uh, introduced to sort of acknowledge this fact. Uh, then the lobbyists got involved. And I won't say more for those who haven't seen the film, but in reality, it shows quite clearly why people haven't heard this before. And that's the question I often get asked in the several hundred lectures I've given since I book came out. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a primary question, to say the least. Uh, and there, in the movie, essentially, you can see how that works because our camera's on the floor. And uh, that's what happened. Now, can you explain, was it that, it wasn't that one of the highest rates of obesity in Kentucky or that county? 
I think, I'm not certain of this at the moment, but the state has been said to be this, have the second highest obesity rate in the country. So obesity is an issue in Kentucky. There's no question about that. And uh, that's where the initial idea came from, from the legislator in, the, in that body, in that legislative body. That's where the primary interest in the beginning was, can we address this question concerning childhood obesity? But obviously it relates a lot more than just childhood obesity. And, and that was to bring plant-based nutrition. But the other outcome was simply to see if the legislator would, would acknowledge the fact that, you know, the information we now have on health, you know, should be told. Should, should this be made aware to the public? And quite frankly, they weren't very happy doing that. And so, and that's another part of this whole story that I find, I mean, that was just one example, but it's across the land that there's a proactive effort uh, to deny this information to the public you know, from institutions that stand to lose, so they say, if this information were to become available. So we're talking about a big issue here, and I find that really, really troublesome. It's a question of morality and democracy, if you will. It seems to me that you know, when we learn something like this that's so important for the public, the least we can do is at least offer this information for their consideration. I'm not in favor of you know, regulations and all that kind of thing. Uh, I, I just like to think that all we really need to do is take a, you know, be responsible and offer this information to the public for their use. And that really isn't happening in an open, open way. If people want to, so I know you have the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies at Cornell. Can you tell us about how they can get more information about whole food plant-based diets or if people want to get your certificate program or go through it? Sure. Uh, our website is nutritionstudies.org. That's studies plural. Nutritionstudies.org. And uh, yes, we have an online course that we try to walk through some of this information. It's really turned out to be quite successful. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we, we partner with the arm of Cornell that handles uh, all the online courses of faculty. And ours has been, continues to be, number one. Out of the, whatever it is, at, at some point, about 200 other, other courses. So we've, we've enjoyed a lot of success with this. And we also offer continuing medical education credits, you know, for physicians and other primary, um, you know, caretakers, health caretakers. So what's in the, the next decade for doc, uh, Dr. Colin Campbell? What's that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I can't quite let this idea go, and I still lecture a lot. Uh, I'm taking off again tomorrow. It's tomorrow, no, the next day for Italy for four or five days. I've been lecturing a lot in, in, in Europe and elsewhere. And I, too, I mean, there's so many people now, I'm really gratified to see the kind of interest that there is rising, much more so than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And the, the group that I find most pleasing are the medical schools. You know, we all, I just think, as a, in general, acknowledge that doctors are, are health leaders. Uh, they have been in the past, they are now supposedly, and they will continue to be in the future. I'm very much in support, you know, the whole medical medical training in a sense. We just need to change things around a little bit. So I, most of my lectures are now to medical schools and medical conferences that are sponsored by medical schools. And uh, I'm just finding that uh, the number of physicians that are coming out 
to hear this message is very impressive. And as I say, very gratifying. It must be. It so, must be. Especially off all, all yeah. the, the wars that you've gone through. And I say wars in a way because I've heard you speak about <laughs> some of the things that happen on boards and things. Um, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? No, I might say something. I mean, uh, we've got several things. It's just my, our youngest son is now he, the co-author of the China study, by the way. His name is Tom. Uh, he was in theater. He went back and went to med school. And now he's the director of a nutrition uh, for a medicine program at a major high, a medical school in this country. There's a person of its kind that's focused on, you know, exploring this whole idea. Uh, so that's very exciting. And, and uh, yeah, and, uh, the plant pyramid thing uh, now is just sort of starting to jump by leaps and bounds, I think, with a whole host of uh, sort of wellness clubs that are being organized in a network, both here and abroad. And so... We're, we're trying to tr- tackle the problem in different ways. And I've got a lot of colleagues doing all kinds of things interesting in these days. It's, but that's also very gratifying. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you yeah. for sm- sneaking me in on uh, your busy schedule. I greatly appreciate it, Dr. Campbell. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate the phone call. And keep up your good work, by the way. Well, I will. All right. And I want to thank you, the audience, okay. for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. You can go to stayinghealthytoday.com, listen to this podcast or iTunes. Uh, Talk to you soon and you have a wonderful day.